Let's uh, pray together as we uh, prepare to dive back into the Word of God together. Lord, we are a thankful people. There is so much to thank you for. Lord, if we stood here praying, thanking you for everything that you are, everything that you have done for us and in our lives, we'd be up here for many days, Lord. But you are worthy of our thanksgiving. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of all glory, Lord God. And we thank you for being with us today, Lord, enjoying this worship that we are bringing to you and offering to you. And Father, now as we open your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, we pray, dear God, that you would use it to transform us, to help us, to encourage us, to steer and guide us, whatever it is your pleasure to do this morning. And Lord, may we not leave this place unchanged, but changed by your Holy Spirit and your word. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Alexander Solzhenitsyn had been a decorated captain in the Soviet Red Army and had fought in World War II against the Germans. But in 1945, Solzhenitsyn was arrested by his own countrymen because of private letters that he had written to a friend where he had expressed some critical comments about Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. And for that criticism, Solzhenitsyn was arrested and sentenced to eight years of hard labor in the Gulag, or the Soviet labor camp. And he'd end up writing a lengthy book entitled The Gulag Archipelago, which is widely recognized as one of the most important works of literature in the 20th century, written in the 20th century. And in that book, Solzhenitsyn records many of the horrific experiences that he and other prisoners were subjected to inside the gulags. And throughout the book, he reflects at length on the very pernicious nature of communist rule. In part four of his book, Solzhenitsyn describes life under that rule, how everyone was required, everyone in the society required to uphold the big lie of communist totalitarianism that was being foisted on them and being promoted, of course, by the government. Solzhenitsyn describes how people were compelled to applaud the lie, and where necessary, people had to change their speech to be careful not to contradict the lie. He also spoke about how loyalty to the lie had to appear in every corner of the society. He wrote this, there exists a collection of ready-made phrases, of labels, a selection of ready-made lies. 
And not one single speech, nor one single essay or article, nor one single book, be it scientific, journalistic, critical, or literary, so-called, can exist without the use of these primary cliches. In the most scientific of texts, it is required that someone's false authority or false priority be upheld somewhere, and that someone be cursed for telling the truth. Without this lie, even an academic work cannot see the light of day. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this sounds rather contemporary, even though it was written over 50 years ago concerning another country. Solzhenitsyn went on to describe how people were compelled and required to show loyalty to the lie even at the lunch table at work and in every conversation with one's employer. And again, for his daring to question the lie, Solzhenitsyn spent eight years in hard labor and several more years in exile. Well, friends, our next passage in the book of Daniel is about the three young believers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who dared to stand up to the lie that the Babylonian state was insisting on. And we begin this morning at Daniel chapter 3 now, verse 1. So just as a reminder, we had that whole business last week uh, concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel providing the, both the content and the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now what happens is Nebuchadnezzar picks up his hammer and his chisel and he creates a statue. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, six cubits. Now, as we said last week, this action of Nebuchadnezzar's building this statue appears to be in direct defiance of his dream, where only the head of the image had been gold. Now in his waking hours, Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue that is gold from top to bottom, probably as a way to say, my glorious golden kingdom with its great victorious Babylonian gods will last forever and ever. It will not be succeeded by any silver, bronze, or iron kingdoms and it certainly will not be smashed by any stone. He builds an impressively large statue, 60 cubits tall and six cubits wide. In other words, the height of this thing, so if you look at the floor from the top, very top of the ceiling here, the height of this thing is about four times the height of our church, 90 feet, 27 and a half meters, and its width is roughly from the middle of this chair to the middle of that chair, nine feet, or 2.7 meters. Nebuchadnezzar goes big here. 
And he goes glitzy with the gold. Think of it standing out there in the sunshine, the gold gleaming in the sun. We're not told exactly what the statue was trying to represent. Was it in the form of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Or was it an image of one of the Babylonian gods? Or was it some sort of monument to the Babylonian empire itself? I think whatever form it took, it's safe to say that the statue represented the glory of the state. The glory of the Babylonian empire with its king and its so-called gods and all of its splendor. And the statue was set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Just as the Tower of Babel, the monument to human pride in Genesis 11, that had been set up on a plain in Shinar. So now Nebuchadnezzar's monument to human pride is also set up on a plain, and perhaps it's even the same plain as the Tower of Babel. Now, friends, the writers of Scripture, we need to understand, are sometimes comedians. Have you noticed that? I think the writers of Scripture enjoyed a laugh as much as we do. And there is now some comedic mockery in this passage, mockery specifically of idolatry. So please notice with me a few features of this passage as we go through it. First of all, Already in verse 1, we've heard the words, set it up, okay? Nebuchadnezzar had to set up this monstrosity that he had created, and he will soon demand that everyone is to worship this set up, lifeless statue. The words set up are repeated for comedic effect. They're repeated throughout the entire passage. So after verse 1, we find those words repeated eight times through verse 18. The glorious state set up by a finite human king is to be worshipped. That's the joke. But the humor takes a further shape now as we go forward to verses 2 and 3. Watch this. So the statue is all done. The chisels are put away. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the Hollywood A-list. He sent invitations, notice, to the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had what? Set up. So the invitations go out. And then notice the sheer repetition that comes next in verse 3. Verse 3 sounds almost identical to verse 2. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had, what? Set up. 
And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this repetition, friends, it's meant to be funny. The idea is that precisely the crowd that Nebuchadnezzar summons is the precise crowd that shows up, no questions asked, at his statue shindig. The state has invited, the state has summoned, we best show up in conformity with the state's demand. And they do show up. There's a red carpet. There's the flash of ancient Near Eastern cameras. Oh, look, there's a satrap wearing Prada. <laughs> there's a magistrate in a stunning Giorgio Armani. Everybody who's anybody is there at the dedication of Nebuchadnezzar's lifeless statue. Photo ops aplenty, table spread with canapes and refreshments. There were major provincial officials there and there were minor provincial officials. There were senior accountants, there were lawyers, there were mayors, all of them there acting in what George Schwab has called mindlessly automatic behavior to do what? To pledge their undying loyalty before the state to the state. To Babylon, and the glasses go up. To the gods of Babylon, another toast is offered. To the empire. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Probably didn't have a bad British accent like that. <laughs> now we interrupt the herald here just for a second. O peoples, nations, and languages. This tells us that the Hollywood A-list who are standing there before this statue at its dedication is an international crowd. This massive Babylonian administration is made up of people from a variety of places who have all been subjugated by mighty Babylon. But now Nebuchadnezzar demands that all of them, regardless of where they came from, must publicly swear allegiance to him and his kingdom. Essentially, friends, they must all behave like Pavlov's dogs. Ivan Pavlov's famous experiment was to condition dogs to salivate when they heard the sound of a ticking metronome. Nebuchadnezzar has something similar in mind. You are commanded, says the herald, that when you hear the sound of the horn, Pipe, lyre, should I read it faster? Trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now, just as we had that very tedious list of all those officials in verses 2 and 3, now we get the first instance of another very tedious list, meant for comedic effect, 
this time a list of musical instruments. This list of instruments is going to reappear more than once <laughs> in our passage. But the idea here is that when the hills come alive with the sound of music, that's the cue for everybody to fall down and worship the lifeless, set-up statue. Sure, you can all go home afterwards in private and worship your national gods, if you like, but when the music starts, you better make sure to fall on your face and worship the set-up job. It is mandatory that you publicly show your allegiance to the state, your allegiance to the lie, state first, and whatever gods you want to continue worshiping in private are second. Oh, and by the way, satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and officials, Whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into one of our industrial-scale kilns that we use for glassmaking and smelting. You will be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace if you don't show your allegiance to the lie. Or as Chris Wright has put it, I think rather wryly, he says, you will either toast the Babylonian king, his kingdom, and his gods, or you'll get toasted yourself. The choice is yours. The government has spoken. Now, maybe you notice that in verses 1 through 5, if you're reading along, that the words King Nebuchadnezzar are repeated five times as a sort of reminder of who is allegedly in charge. Notice what happens now in verse 7. The threat of the furnace has just been voiced. So, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard, what? <laughs> Here comes the tediousness again, right? As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. All the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, the way this story is written here in this comedic way is to stress the automatic, robotic, thoughtless response, right? the unquestioning obedience of the crowd to the state. The music's playing. Everybody, bow down. And they trip over one another to be the first to bow down before the lifeless statue. A whole crowd, friends, a whole crowd of mindless automatons, an entire group of mindless idolaters happily feeding the hubris and the psychopathy of Nebuchadnezzar. Living out the lie without a thought in the world. Verse 8. Therefore, in other words, because everybody was doing it happily, everybody should be bowing down like this happily, certain Chaldeans noticed that 
hey, wait a minute, there are three people here who aren't bowing down to the statue. And we're pretty sure that these three are part of that Jewish crowd who got promoted recently on our turf. In their jealousy, these Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. (laughs) You, O king, have made a decree. Yes, king, the the decree was already written in verses 5 and 6, but we're going to repeat it to you again in case you've forgotten it. The specific decree was that every man who hears what? The sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down, king, and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Do you remember that decree that you just made, king? Well, king, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king... Pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. Notice you. They pay no attention to you. They serve, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have what? Set up. Now, if we wonder where Daniel is here, it's probably the case that he was left back in the capital to manage the affairs of government while Nebuchadnezzar and all the others traveled down to the plain of Dura for this statue dedication. So it's just the three friends of Daniel who are hauled onto the carpet now for their failure to bow down to the statue. Now, somewhat predictably, as Nebuchadnezzar hears about this, he blows another fuse. We've seen him do this already in the story. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, not just rage, furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And what happens? The Babylonian bureaucrats follow the king's orders immediately with no questions. So they brought these men before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, to his credit, Nebuchadnezzar wants to hear from the three who are accused, right? It suggests that maybe he doesn't fully trust the report of the Chaldeans who had come forth with the accusation. He wants to hear firsthand from these three young men, is it true what they're telling me? And at verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar gives them now a second chance. Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, dragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. Now, friends, do you see here in verse 15 the insanity 
of bowing before idols instead of the living God. Note what Nebuchadnezzar says here. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, come on, boys, just worship this cheap, man-made thing, this piece of construction. As Dale Davis puts it, Nebuchadnezzar's statue was no more divine than your knee replacement. But here is Nebuchadnezzar rabidly insisting that everyone bow before it and worship it. it. All of this is really the scriptures writers mocking commentary on the utter foolishness of idolatry of worshiping anything other than the true God. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm giving you a second chance here, boys. Just bow to the statue. That's all you have to do. Worship this golden mock-up. And then the end of verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, friends, I, I want you to just, just imagine this for a moment. As Chris Wright has pointed out, one minute, these guys, these three young guys, were promoted in Babylon. They were given jobs in high places in Babylon. And the next minute they found themselves under immediate threat of death from the same king and the same kingdom. How the tide has turned and turned very suddenly for these three young men, just as it did for David, who went from valued court musician one minute to having spears thrown at him the next. Or how the tide turns suddenly also for Elijah, who enjoyed hero status on Mount Carmel one minute, but the next minute was running for his life from Jezebel. Or how the tide turns suddenly for Jesus, applauded and praised with palm branches as he came into Jerusalem, but later that same week, having a crowd of bloodthirsty people shout, crucify him. If the same pattern of being cheered and praised one minute, but then being despised and in danger the next minute shows up in our lives as believers, we can rejoice. Because really, we're just following suit with the great saints of the Bible and our Lord himself. Nebuchadnezzar ends his, his little speech here to the three boys with a question. Notice this. After he threatens them with the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar says, and I think I always imagine he's leaning in close to them for dramatic effect here. And who is the God who will deliver you out of he stares at them for dramatic effect. Now, this is a rhetorical question that Nebuchadnezzar fully expects should be answered, well, no God 
is able to deliver us out of your hands, O king. Right? That's what he expects. Nebuchadnezzar's question, notice his question, it shows us very clearly that Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as all-powerful, even over the gods. Notice carefully that he doesn't ask this question. He doesn't say, who is the God who will deliver you from the gods I serve? Rather, he asks, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar is claiming the status of an all-powerful God here. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is in full control of everything. Nebuchadnezzar is pathetic. And we can imagine that in that moment when Nebuchadnezzar asked his question, God in heaven was laughing. Like he laughs in Psalm 2 at all the proud posturing of human kings. And as an old preacher said, when God laughs, there ain't nothing funny. And finally, we come to our last three verses then today. Verses 16 through 18. Where the three young men reply to Nebuchadnezzar, and what a reply it is, friends. Circle it, highlight it in your Bible if you like to do that. What they say here is very remarkable for a number of reasons. So come with me to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, I want you to notice the very, very bold courage of these three young men. Notice that they call the king by his first name. You notice that? Nebuchadnezzar. They don't use the title king. There is no, oh, king, live forever here. It's just Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. I suspect that these young men realized at that moment that this king standing before them was just a man after all. A man with a first name. Like they all had first names. They use his first name. They drop all the gingerbread titles. And they continue in, in verse 17. Listen to what they say, friends. Maybe like this. If this be so, Nebuchadnezzar, so if you indeed end up casting us into the furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. And then they say, O king, O king. But notice how late it comes. So what the three young men are implying here, very clearly and very resolutely, is that they, listen, they will not perform the lie that Nebuchadnezzar was Demanding, They will not bow down before this shining statue. These three young guys followed the true God, yes? Growing up, they had been saturated in God's law, in the Torah. 
And in the Torah was Exodus 20, verse 5, where God in the Ten Commandments stipulated that his children must not bow down to carved images of any kind. And in that law was also Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, which says that Yahweh is God in heaven above and earth beneath. There is no other including Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian state. These three young men will follow in obedience to what God stipulated and what God commanded. They will not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They won't live the lie. They will obey God rather than men. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. They know that this God who they serve is the same God who parted the Red Sea at the Exodus. They know that this God who they serve is the same God who thundered at Sinai and made the mountain quake. They serve this great and supreme God before they serve the state and Nebuchadnezzar. And just as this God once took the water that he created and easily split that water in half so that his people could pass through safely, so this God can take the fire that he created and confine it so that it doesn't burn his servants. He is able, they say, Yes, he is, to deliver us. Now, they're just talking sense here, right? They're talking truth. But, oh, friends, I want you to watch what they say next in our final verse this morning, verse 18. Watch this very carefully. God is able to deliver us, they've just said. But if not... Just pause on those words for a minute. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not. Now, is this a sort of faithless statement here? Do we want to jump into the story here, if we could, and say to these boys, your if not suggests that you're doubting God's deliverance. Don't doubt. Just believe that God will indeed deliver you should you end up in that furnace. Don't say if not. It suggests that you're doubting God's ability to rescue you. If that's us, we get things very wrong. I want you to listen carefully, my friends. These three boys had faith in God. And faith in God is a faith that does not demand a certain outcome. I'll say that again. Faith in God 
is a faith that does not demand a certain outcome. These three young men are full of faith in God when they say, but if not. They know, I want you to listen carefully, they know that God is all wise and they are not. And in his wisdom, in his sovereign ruling freedom in his loving good designs for them, he might deliver them from the fire or in his mercy, he may decide to free them eternally from compelled idolatry and take them home. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not interested in demanding from God the outcome that they want. Instead, they are willing to let God be God. And humbly, they are confessing God's freedom to do as he wisely chooses. He is in heaven, and they are his creatures on earth. As for them, they will be faithful to God by obeying his command not to bow down to the image. Whether that means God grants them more days on this earth or whether he decides to take them home to be with him, they don't put their faith in their deliverance. They put their faith in God. And they sound a little like Job here. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, I want you to notice something important that Chris Wright directed my attention to this week as I was reading his commentary on Daniel. He took me to Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith chapter where in verses 33 and 34, these young men in Daniel are praised as examples of those who stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire through faith in God. But then we get into verse 36 of that chapter and we hear about others in Old Testament times who suffered mocking, flogging, Stoning, being sawn in half, not a great chance you'd survive that, death by the sword, etc. So God in his wisdom spared some from death, like the boys in the furnace and Daniel in the lion's den, but others he did not spare. But then we get verse 39, friends where the writer of Hebrews tells us that all these, how many? All of these, whether spared or not spared in the wisdom of God, all these are commended through their faith. So whether the outcome for them was life or death, all these were commended through their faith. All these, whether spared whether suffering and dying had faith in God, faith in God to be wise, whether it meant life for them or death for them. 
You and I must not put our faith in desired outcomes. We must put our faith in God. Brian Chappell says, we must not have faith in our belief. We must have faith in God. He says, faith is not confidence in our belief, but confidence in our God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw their obedience to the commands of God as far more important than complying with Nebuchadnezzar's craziness. These three young men decided that they would live out the truth of God rather than comply with the lies of the state. And they let God be God. They might end up in the fire and God might spare them well and good. Or they might end up in the fire and perish also well and good because the decision was in the hands of the all-wise God in whom they trusted. Now, all of this, friends, as we wrap this to a close, all of this reminds us of Jesus. All this points to Jesus. Jesus faced his own greater Nebuchadnezzar, Satan himself, who came to Jesus in the wilderness demanding that Jesus bow down and worship. Matthew 4, 8 and 9, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. At which point Jesus took out his sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus pulls out the sword that is the word of God and he strikes Satan with it. Be gone, Satan, he says, for it is written, yes, it is written, in the Torah that Jesus knew backwards and forwards in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, Jesus knew in that moment that indeed the kingdoms of the world would be given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth would be given to him, but not in Satan's way. Jesus would first have to endure the cross and be raised from the dead, and he would receive cosmic authority from the Father. Jesus would not bow down to the father of lies. And just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had so courageously declared before Nebuchadnezzar that their destiny in life and in death was in God's wise hands and not in Nebuchadnezzar's, so Jesus, as he faced death in Gethsemane, said to the father, take this cup from me. But then, not my will, but yours be done, Father. Your plan for me is all wise, Father. Your will for me is best, Father. 
Now, believing friend, redeemed believer, aren't you glad that Jesus refused to bow to Satan so that he could go to the cross and save us and receive cosmic authority the right way from the Father? Aren't you glad this morning on Thanksgiving? Aren't you thankful? This Jesus, crucified and raised for our justification, says to us, when we are threatened in 2023, threatened by the Nebuchadnezzars of the world, he says to us, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our reverence, our worship, our allegiance is to God. Our faith is in him in life, and in death. Take courage. Let's pray. Father, you are so kind to us in giving us your word, which is this this week's passage, funny but so powerful. And we thank you that your spirit has been here speaking to us by your word, Again, Lord, I pray that wherever I have gotten in the way, and I'm sure that has happened a lot, that you would just take all that like chaff and burn it away so that people would remember your power through spirit and word. And Father, that we would be transformed so that we look increasingly like Jesus. This week, as we go into the marketplace, Lord, help us to be courageous, to be Christ-like, to be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves, And may your power follow us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.